Okay, welcome everyone. Um, today, I thought I'd start with a quote. And this is a quote from a English poet, I believe. So often theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. This is, um, this quote is, is taken from uh, um, some poem in, in, in from medieval England, I believe. But it's, um, it's, original source is from India. This is an old Indian legend. And if you want to read about the Buddhist version of it, it's on the internet as well. And the story goes that there was once a king who uh, wanted to have some fun and so he called together a bunch of blind men. And he had them examine an elephant and they each looked at uh, they each came up to the elephant and being blind of course they they had to grab a piece of the elephant with their their hands and so one of the blind men looked at the grabbed the head of the elephant and they said to him oh this is an elephant some got the ear and they said, this is the elephant. Some got a tusk, the body, the foot, got different pieces of the elephant. And then they came back to the king and, and the king said, well, have you seen the elephant? And they said, yes, we've seen the elephant. And he said, well, then tell me, what, so what's an elephant like? And the ones who had touched the head of the elephant said, oh, an elephant is just like a water jar. And the ones who had touched the ear, they said, oh, no, 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 no. An elephant is like a winnowing basket, ba a big basket that they winnow rice in. And another, the other group that had been shown the tu had been t had touched the tusk said, no, no, no. A tusk is, is like a plowshare. Uh, an elephant is like a plowshare. And the one t that touched the trunk said, no, 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 it's like a plow pole. And the other said, it's like a storeroom. It's like a... Uh, post, it's like a, an, a mortar, it's like a broom and so on based on the pieces of the elephant that they had touched because none of them, their hands are are, are only so big and can only touch a, a piece of the elephant and so as a result they came to understand the elephant to be just a piece of the elephant And this this teaching is so popular because this is exactly how humans behave in in what is most important in life. What, what is most important to people when one of the things that's most important being religion. And this is especially true in religion. And so it's passed along with 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 many different religious traditions. 
as um, as a teaching for people who would would spend all of their time you know, denouncing other sects and other religions and promoting their own and I think this is incredibly apt for Buddhism and it, it shows some foresight of the Buddha in, in relating this story um, even in the time of the Buddha there there were many different religious groups who were fighting and wrangling and unable to agree on what was the truth but even nowadays even in Buddhism we find sometimes that we're unable to agree on, on even unable to agree on on uh, what Buddhism is or find ourselves se uh, separating the various practitioners of Buddhism and, and separating into us and them and trying to distinguish ourselves from the other groups of Buddhism so we have the Theravada we have the Mahayana we have Zen Buddhism we have Vajrayana Buddhism we have many different names for Buddhism in, in, in many different places and one of the things that really strikes me when you look at all of these traditions is that really they're just like the elephant it's as though each of these schools has picked a piece of, of, of the elephant, in this case a piece of Buddhism, and has said this is Buddhism and then they develop that piece to the extent that they blot out or forget about or, or deny the importance of the other pieces. As though an elephant were only its trunk or only its tail. I think this is one mistake that Buddhists make in this regard. The other mistake that we often make is one of, I, I guess the word you could use is bigotry, where we say, only my school does X, or my school focuses on Y, or this or that. And we make the claim that other schools don't don't concern themselves with this and the funny thing is you can find just about every school of Buddhism saying the same thing about the same stu subject uh, you can find various groups and if you go around and talk especially coming from one group and talking to people of another group they will say yeah you can turn that off they will say oh yes um, yes I know your school but in my school we focus on this uh, I know your your school focuses on that and it's it's quite quite interesting to hear these sorts of things because they're they're rarely rarely if ever true and they most often have to do with things like 
the difference between meditation and study or the difference between monasticism and uh, the lay life, the difference between helping oneself and helping other people. And so we get all these these ideas about our, our type, our flavor of Buddhism, and and we separate Buddhism into different categories, which is really uh, patently absurd, considering that um, the leader of Buddhism, the Buddha, had no such labels. Most obviously, had no such labels, and. More, more than that, the focus of Buddhism is on the teaching itself. So, it's it's hard to understand how you can how you can justify separating the Buddhist teaching out into pieces when you've got one teacher, one one core teacher, or or if you want to say uh, the Buddhas, uh, a person who is a Buddha, and they they couldn't all teach different things not not in an not in their essentials and so i've come to to an understanding for myself that you know buddhism is buddhism and there's no benefit gained from calling yourself this type of buddhist or that type of buddhist and in fact all of the supposed specialties or um the core, the the core doctrines of the various you know, Buddhist schools are all simply part of the the whole. For instance, in the Theravada, we um, this is a tradition that I was <coughs> brought up in. There's an emphasis on uh, respect for one's elders in in re in terms of respect for the teaching of the elders and being careful to guard this teaching and to distinguish it from new teachings that could come up from anywhere and 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 generally don't come from an enlightened buddha and trying our best to um relate our relate the teachings back to the buddha himself or a buddha i think this is a i think this is really beneficial quality and I don't think it's absent in any of the other schools of Buddhism. Um I, I know in in from what I understand um respect for teachers, respect for for authority in terms of you know s differentiating between anyone's view, even one's own view and the view of someone who is, you know, by all <coughs> by all appearances um either enlightened or, or, or on their way to becoming enlightened. That someone who has gained experience in the practice. Uh, especially, you know, the highest being the Buddha himself. And yet, often you see in Theravada what happens is that people take this to an extreme and um, they can often become quite bigoted and focused on on simply the 
the teachings themselves instead of practicing. So it's it often becomes a tradition of of book book learning, studying the texts. When you have a set of texts that are fixed, then one of the the pastimes when when your when your focus is to preserve the text then one of the important pastimes becomes the memorization and the recitation and the the guarding of of these teachings and so as a result often people often people forget about the meditation side or you know, read the teachings, learn about the teachings, and don't ever practice them. Even when it's very clear in the teachings that um, book study is, is only a very limited part, and one who 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 sticks only to to book study, to theoretical study, is not really uh, not really following the Buddha's teaching. And then you have Mahayana Buddhism. This um, Mahayana Buddhism is 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 actually a doctrinal uh, teaching from India, but nowadays it's it's come to describe several different groups of Buddhists. But the meaning of Mahayana is that the essential meaning is that you help other people. It's it's great. Maha means great or or large because your intention is to help people. The intention of the Mahayana is to help other people. So I often get this, that, oh yes, I know your type of Buddhism, it's it's um, monastic and it's for helping one's own own self and, and becoming enlightened for oneself and not helping others. Or, or they won't go that far, but they'll say, but my tradition, we focus more on going out into the world and, and helping other people. And this is this is, I think, a really great thing as well. But I don't think it's absent from the Theravada or or any of the other Buddhist schools. I don't think you'd find any Buddhist school where there's people where there's nobody um, interested in in helping other people. I think such a school would have died out a long time ago, obviously, without any passing of the teachings along, without any helping other people. And yet, in all of the traditions, there are people who don't pass the teachings along. Um, and I don't, as far as I understand, I, this isn't this isn't considered to be wrong. Uh, it's just not as as noble, and it's not as as big as great a vehicle. So, for sure, it's. It's great to have these noble ideas of helping other people. I th think the problem is people go to an extreme, and I've heard stories of theory and doctrine where it's proper for you to do evil deeds um, if it's going to help someone else somehow help someone else become in enlightened or help someone else on the path to towards enlightenment or even provide for their, their well-being. So you could lie or cheat or kill or steal. 
if it was for the purpose of, of helping someone else. Because this is self-sacrifice. It's great because you're helping someone else. And to me that's going too far. Um, and in fact I have very strict morals about this as far as you know, never killing, never stealing for, for any purpose. Because I don't believe that a, a good can come from a bad, an evil. No matter how quote-unquote pure your intentions are, your real intentions are impure when you deprive someone of something or when you, you create a disruption in the harmony of the universe. And it was to the point that in ancient times people would um, would never think to kill or steal or lie. In the, in the the old the old Buddhist legends or, or or stories that the Buddha told, that the time we're living in is so corrupt that that we don't we have a hard time seeing this. We have a hard time understanding the problem with killing and how how profound it is to kill something, to steal. When in ancient times it was like it was incomprehensible that anyone would take something that wasn't given or take someone's life the minds the reality was just so much purer back then and yet you know nowadays people will will and and people will go to the extent of of not practicing meditation saying oh i've got to get out there and help the poor help the sick you know this or that and this this isn't um, confined to the quote-unquote Mahayana, it's it's a problem equally in the Theravada or in all traditions where people um, lose sight of the important the importance of meditation, the importance of the purification of the mind, and and get caught up in helping people in worldly affairs. You know, monks um, running cultural uh, events. Uh, teaching public school and so on, and these are these are done in with the idea that somehow you're ve benefiting people by by helping them in a worldly sense, and as a result neglect and wind up neglecting the uh, the spiritual side of life, which is is obviously why we have have come to follow the Buddhist teaching. So the Mahayana, the, the 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 aspect of Buddhism that is the helping of other people, it, it, we've got the best example in the world is the is the Buddha himself. The best example you could ask for is the the Buddha who decided that rather than simply enjoying the peace and the happiness that he had gained, he would go out and spend forty five years teaching, teaching how many hours a day from 2 a.m. till 10 p.m. And, and but it's important that we don't go too far with that. The third tradition that that's very common in the world is called Zen Buddhism. And Zen Buddhism to me is is a, is um, that the name of it anyway is a bit of a thorn. Um, be because the word Zen simply means meditation. It comes from the Chinese word Chan, or it's the same as the Chinese word Chan. So they have Chan Buddhism in China. And that in turn comes from the Pali word Jhana, or the Sanskrit word Dhyana. 
which simply means meditation. So this school of Buddhism says, well, yes, yes, your, your schools are okay, but our school focuses on meditation. Our school is the meditation school. And uh, you know, it's fine, great to say, yes, we practice meditation, but again, the problem comes that, as with all the schools, that we, um, we, we come to think that only our school, only our school does this. And we forget that, that or we, we, we don't realize that, that the other schools are practicing meditation that, or practicing these things that are, are very similar or even exactly the same as what we practice. So even in Buddhism, we have people trying to separate various meditations out into categories and so on. And uh, there was a really interesting article written by Rahula. This, I think, is the same monk who wrote what the Buddha taught. And it was something, something about the Zen Buddhism and 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 Theravada Buddhism, or else Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism. I can't remember. And he was explaining it, and and he was he was showing that. You know, all of the different doctrines where we say we're this, we're that, and, and this, the separations were, were, were totally against the, the reality of, of, of both schools or, or of the different schools. And in fact, the meditation that Theravada Buddhists practice is the same meditation that Zen Buddhists practice. The, en the enlightenment and the, the development of the mind is is the same in both cases or or similar meditations exist in both schools the the great thing i think about zen buddhism and and it's one of the reasons i think that it's so popular is because that is the core of buddhism is meditation and so by giving it that name you've done a good ser a great service in terms of pointing out that that is um, that is the core. You say, what, what, what do we do as Buddhists? Well, we practice meditation. I say, great, that's exactly what Buddhists should do. That's what we're here for. In fact, the Buddha said, even if you don't study, if you've studied very little, if you've studied just enough to understand how to practice meditation, and then you go and practice meditation um, until you come to the realization and, and the understanding that we call enlightenment, the Buddha said, You're, you've done enough. On the other hand, if you've studied a lot, if you've read the suttas and the discourses over and over and never practiced meditation, you're, you, you haven't done what's necessary. In fact, you're... you're still empty inside. You still haven't gained anything from the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said it's like a, a, a cow herd, someone who keeps the cows of other, other people, who looks after other people's cows. You don't get the benefits of the, 
of the animal. You don't get the milk or the butter or the the ghee or the curds or so on. You don't get the milk. So the the only thing there is is it it becomes a source of ego as with everything. You know, in in Theravada Buddhism, we have this ego about our our texts are the purest in in purest. In Mahayana, they have this ego. People can have this ego about we we are the great vehicle and we are helping people. In Zen Buddhism, you can get this ego trip about oh we are the best meditators or we are the only ones who really meditate. And and I'm not trying to say that that all these schools of Buddhism are are wrong. There's a lot of brilliant people in in every one of the schools. But I don't think the schools themselves are helpful. I don't think these labels have any benefit or purpose whatsoever. <laughs> Good to see people agree, and and I'm I'm kind of laughing because I think it's 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 probably not um, not the most popular sort of concept because there's people who are very um, attached to their schools. The final school that I want to talk about, there are several other schools of Buddhism that I don't really want to talk about. I, I, I maybe have a, some bias against them. And there's, there's some some schools of Buddhism that I think are, are just are probably not, um, you know, not on the level of these four. I would say these four, at the very least, it's easy to see how they relate to the Buddha's teaching. The fourth one is the Vajrayana, and it's very popular nowadays. Um, better known as Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and this is because in Tibet they generally practice some form of Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. And this is the one I know the least about. Um, I do generally live under a rock. I'm not, I'm not as, um, as well-learned and, and well-read as I may seem. Uh, I don't study much more than what my teacher taught me and, and sort of this school, this circle of teachers because I do have a specific meditation practice that I follow and that I teach to other people. I consider that this is what the Buddha taught and um, I, 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 I look at other traditions in terms of whether they follow along with that specific teaching. If they don't, then I say, okay, um, I don't have much to say. And I don't, I don't spend much of my time uh, studying them, especially Tibetan Buddhism, the problem is that it's it's also called esoteric Buddhism, and this is in the sense that you have to get the teachings from a teacher, and many of the higher teachings have to be given in private, and they'll try not to uh, spread these teachings in the public, because the idea is there's a power to the teachings, and as with anything, they can, you know, uh, like a power tool. If you just give it to children, it's uh, very easy for them to hurt themselves. I think this is true with all meditation. I think this is a very good um, principle. When I teach meditation over the internet, people say, <coughs> you know, what are you doing? You're 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 giving out these meditation videos, sending them around the world, up on YouTube, uh, you know, teaching meditation to people you've never met. And 
This is true, but on, if you look on the videos on the internet, all I'm teaching is something very, very basic. I'm teaching an introduction to meditation. And there's lots more that I, I haven't taught on the internet. And when someone comes to do a course with us, you know, we, in the beginning we walk a simple walking step. Later on I give you more walking steps, more s different sitting practices. And there are many practices that we don't let anyone know about until, it, until they come to the time where they can practice them. So I would say my Buddhism is, is esoteric as well. <laughs> you know, you can't say that your Buddhism is the esoteric Buddhism and your Buddhism, you know, my teacher is, is this or this. The, the truth is, when, when we look, when we have an open mind about these things, we can see that, that we're all really talking about the same thing. And so when I say I stick to my teachers and I stick to my path, um, yes, it's, it's true that I'm not interested in, in these other teachings, but the interesting thing is that most of them are teaching very similar things as well. And this is something that, that, that um, only came to me after you know, interacting with some of these people. I know I and I used to be bigoted. I can I had times where I was bigoted as well, and I would call myself Theravada, and I say yes, yes, our Buddhism is the best, and so on. And then I realized that you know really the problem is not the other schools of Buddhism. The problem is all of the schools that we say you know my school is is especially this or my school is especially that, and we lose sight of the big the greater picture that we're all here to meditate, we're all here to become enlightened, we're all here to help other people. The, the neat thing, one of the, another neat thing that I do know about Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism is uh, that it has to do with ritual and mantra. And um, the word ritual is is um is a topic of debate for Buddhists because actually the Buddha said we're to avoid b rituals, we're to avoid um, the practice of of meaningless repetitive action. Um, we're we're to remove the idea that somehow a I see no somehow a ritual is going to is going to enlighten us and so here here we have a problem uh, we have these buddhists practicing ritual and and the truth is i think the word ritual is a mis misuism um what they call misnomer it's an it's not the proper term here because if we're talking about a ritual in terms of the importance of the act itself you know, if you ring the bell in this way, you become enlightened. If you ring the bell in, a, in the wrong way, nothing happens. You know, if you chant this word, you become enlightened. If you chant that word, you go to hell and so on. If you chant the words exactly right, there's some magic to it. It's some. Um, the meaning of, of, of a ritual is something, according to Buddhists, of a, a ritual that we, we avoid is some practice that is expected to give results without any obvious without containing any obvious cause for those results so for instance if you walk up and down stairs expecting to get big leg muscles 
Well, you could say, oh, that's kind of ritualistic, but it's not a ritual because there's cause and effect there. But if you walk up and down the stairs expecting to be able to fly, uh, saying if I walk up and down these stairs a hundred times, suddenly I'm going to be able to fly, then you've, you've uh, fallen into the realm of ritual. And I would say this isn't what is going on in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, certainly. I guarantee it's not. The, the importance of repetitive action is demonstrated well by walking up and down the stairs or lifting weights. You know, you could see people in the weight room and if someone had no clue, if, you, if an alien came down from another planet and saw these people lifting weights, they think this must be a, ri a religious ritual. These people are doing something you know, meaningless. But the truth is that as they do this, their bodies become stronger and they have the power to um, you know, do whatever it is that people do with strong bodies. I kind of laugh because my muscles are atrophying. And but But meditation is very much the same. We practice meditation in a very repetitive manner. You know, I teach people to walk back and forth in a room. And I teach people to recite a mantra. And I think it's good that we reinstate this practice of mantra meditation because a mantra is a very powerful tool. It's something that focuses the mind very clearly on the object. So in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism they have their mantras that create great states of concentration. But in the Theravada, there are many mantras. There are, there are many mantras and, and long passages that people will, will recite again and again and again. Just in the same way as Tibetan Buddhists do. I've been to Bodhgaya and I've listened to the Tibetans do their chanting. They're really good at chanting. But Thai people as well are very good at chanting. They have. There are Thai people I would walk on alms round by their house every morning and hear them chanting something something that is actually, honestly, totally ridiculous. They have this, there's these new chants that have come up in Thailand that they say have come from the heavens, and if you chant them, special things are going to happen. Magical things will happen. And so they chant these. It's Pali, it's the Pali language, but it's it, it's it's more or less meaningless. So it's, it has a mantra quality. And the, the good part of it is these people get a lot of concentration. The bad part is they have you know, unrealistic beliefs. They believe that if you do this, something magical is going to happen. That has no relationship to the act in terms of cause and effect. But in, Vaj in Vajrayana Buddhism, as in other types of Buddhism, the repetition, the ritual, doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have uh, these... The, the biggest one in Tibetan Buddhism is the bowing. If you've ever been to Bodh Gaya in India, you see the Tibetan Buddhist monks bowing thousands and thousands of times. And I think for many people it is meaningless. For many people it has some um, some meaning that is is unrealistic. But I would think for the people who understand what they're doing, that they're training their minds. The practice is one of dedicating yourself 
to humility, to, uh, to the dedication itself, to the determination to uh, dedicate yourself to this practice. You know, re reaffirming in your mind every time you bow what you're doing. The incredible change that that affects on your mind is very real. As, as is the incredible effect of walking back and forth. Of course, in the meditation that, that I um, teach to people, we're focusing on the movements, movements themselves. In, in the Buddhist tradition that I follow there in Thailand, there are many practices where you focus on, on the Buddha, or you focus on, on a concept or, or um, a bright light that appears in your mind or so on. In, in the practice that I follow, we're just adapting that mantra, the idea of a mantra, to focus on the movements themselves. And I would say this is um, this can be found in all of the schools of Buddhism. This bringing the focus back to the body and to the mind, back to the, re the mundane reality. You'll find this in Tibet. You'll find this in Japan. You'll find this. In Burma, you'll find this in Sri Lanka, you'll find it in Thailand, you'll find it in all of the Buddhist countries, and you'll find it outside of Buddhist countries as well. Wherever Buddhists go, wherever the people following the Buddhist teaching go and bring the Buddhist teaching with them, they carry along these basic principles of trying to understand mundane reality for what it is, trying to rise above these judgments, the compartmentalization of reality into good and bad acceptable and unacceptable. So that we're able to accept, we're able to live with reality for what it is. And this is really the essence of Buddhism, that we understand reality for what it is, that we come to see the truth of life, see the truth of reality. And this is why I'm Buddhist because in my mind there's nothing more useful than coming to see the truth of reality. And this, as I was talking to Zeno a few days ago, is the reason why I'm back here teaching at the Buddha Center. <coughs> um, because I appreciate the fact that it's Buddhist, and not this type of Buddhist or that type of Buddhist, but it's open to all schools of Buddhism, as long as they are teaching the teachings of the Buddha, as long as they're teaching Buddhist teachings, helping people to come to understand reality for what it is, um, then they can they're welcome to come to teach here. And to me, that 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 is the most important, uh, and and in fact, it is incredibly important. It's important for us to to rise above these labels that I am this type of Buddhist or that type of Buddhist. All we mean by Buddhist is we're following a path to see things for what they are. The word Buddha means one who knows. We're following those people who know. We're following the path of knowledge. We're following to become, we're following a path to become one who knows, one who understands, one who sees things for what they are. This is what is meant by Buddha, 
one who knows. This is what is meant by Buddhist, one who follows the teachings of knowledge, the teachings of those who know. And to that end, in fact, we don't even have to call ourselves Buddhist, right? Because even that can, can cause problems. If, if anyone noticed when I teach meditation on the internet, when I teach at the jail, I've stopped using the word Buddhist, m mostly. Um, most of the time I, I don't use even use the word. When I'm teaching at the jail downtown, it's the Federal Detention Center, um, it's really a shame because for the men, only those who have registered as Buddhists are able to come and meditate with me. But for the women, because there's only one group of women, there's far fewer women in the center than there are men, uh, because they're all in one area, you know, we were able to go up and talk with them, and I was able to explain to them that I'm not really teaching Buddhism. I, I mean, I'm not calling it Buddhism. I, I'm just teaching meditation. So actually, I've gotten people to come down from many different Buddha, many different religious traditions. I had one woman. Uh, I went up with the chaplain. He's a reverend, a Protestant minister. And uh, I was up there, and there was an Asian woman, and I thought well, maybe she's Thai, maybe she's uh, a Buddhist. And so I said to her, you, "Would you like to come meditate?" She said, "No, no, no. I'm Christian." And I said, oh, that doesn't matter. The, I said, the, the, the minister here, he comes and meditates with me as well. And so far she hasn't come down, but um, that's another, that's an example of how labels get in the way. Because you're Christian, you won't come and meditate. I don't think that's really proper. And so the minister, he asked me, he said he was trying to find a, a parallel between, you know, what he does in his tradition and what I do in my tradition. And I said, you know, really, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't. You don't have to think of what we do as a religious practice. You don't have to compare it to praying to God or so on. I said I would rather you compare it to therapy, to what a therapist does. Because whether you're Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish or, or, or Hindu or whatever religion, you, you still have, you're still a human being. And you still have things in your mind that cause you suffering. Modes of behavior that are stressful and, and painful to yourself and to other people. And this is what Buddhism is able to address. This is what Buddhism is able to ameliorate the stress and the suffering that comes from our mental illnesses, our mental uh, stress and upset. And so you don't, ha you don't have to call it Buddhist at all. You can just say, well, this is something useful for you, something beneficial for you. We, I think calling it Buddhist can be useful. If we don't use any labels, then people don't have a clue what we're doing and they don't know where we're coming from. At least when we say Buddhist, they have some frame of reference. And I, th I think that's not so bad. As long as we are clear to the Christians and Muslims and so on that, that you can practice Buddhism as a Christian. You can practice Buddhism as a Muslim. There's no, there's no uh, absolute necessi necessity to give these things up. 
because Buddhism is something that helps me. Okay, so I've been talking for far too long, and I'd like to thank you all for being patient with me. And uh, if there's any questions, I'm happy to take them. Otherwise, thank you all for coming, and see you next week.